This is your invitation to a masterclass in engineering and design. Your ticket to go from zero to 60 with the Lexus Performance Line. A feeling this dynamic is invite only. Fortunately, you're invited. Experience the exhilaration of the Lexus Performance Line and some of the best offers of the year on select models at the Invitation to Lexus sales event, now through April 1st. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Welcome to Top Unleashed 127. Uh, we'll be covering grooming gangs, Hollywood, and Scientology abuses. All the good stuff this week. If you're wondering where Sean is, he's otherwise engaged, doing some important work. Uh, he'll be back at some point in the near future. I've not killed him. You can't prove anything. Um, probably shouldn't have said that on a live stream. Right. So we've got a number of guests lined up today. Uh, some people I'm really looking forward to speaking to. Some huge, huge topics as well. So I'd love for you to give me plenty of questions. Uh, I'm Stephen Knight. If it's the first time you've been here, reporter, blogger, and general nuisance on Twitter. Uh, Gary in the chat just said, Stephen, that is correct. Gary's eyes are working perfectly. Um, okay, so Shane just said, hope everyone's doing well. I hope everyone's doing well too, Shane. Thanks. It's nice. Um, so uh, to start with, our first guest from six o'clock is Raja Meyer. MBE, uh, he, with over 25 years of experience of working alongside marginalized communities written off as racist, Raja has used his expertise to provide a platform to articulate and raise the legitimate concerns of working class groups that mainstream politicians and policymakers have forsaken. That's very interesting. So he's internationally recognized as an expert in tackling extremism and strengthening communities. Raja has worked directly with world leaders, including multiple UK prime ministers and secretaries of state. By the age of 30, he was awarded an MBE for his services to the community. The age of 30. If anyone under the age of 30 is uh, listening or over, in fact, you've got to start asking yourself what you've been doing with your time. Despite attempts at censorship and a mainstream media blackout through the excessive use of social media, Raj's explosive Welcome to Oldham series quickly reached an audience of over a million using skills honed while working in counter extremism through his uh, recusant nine transmissions. Raja has exposed the cover up of grooming gangs, local government corruption and how Labour Party politicians have encouraged division by courting the cartel controlled block Asian vote at the expense of other communities. Looking forward to that one so much to uh, get into there. I mean, grooming gangs issue is massive. I don't think there's a part of the UK that hasn't been touched by that now. Uh, I'm from Greater Manchester, so I'm very close to the sort of, you know, hotspot areas that made the news, one of which we'll talk about today, which is Oldham, Rochdale, Haywood, those places they are, you know... <laughs> 15 minutes in a car for me. So that, that had quite an impact on the local community. So I'm really looking forward to picking Raj's brains on that with him being the expert and all the experience he's got. Uh, then from 6.30 to 7, I'll be speaking to journalist and former child actress Arden Young. Uh, she'll be the second guest on tonight's show and she'll be discussing the abuses in Hollywood she discovered as a fledgling thespian. 
Uh, Arden has gone on to work for Sound Investigations, which looks into corruption in adult industries, exposing platforms such as Pornhub for not verifying the ages of people in their videos. Lot to talk about there. People love some inside information into Hollywood, the system. It's very alien to us mere mortals. You know, there's a lot of, uh, I mean, Oscar season is just around the corner. You may have seen all the nominations. I think they were released today, actually. And um, you know, you know, you can bet your bottom dollar on the fact that when those awards are handed out on that stage, celebrity after celebrity will line up to lecture you about moral issues and inclusion uh, and whatever war happens to be on that week, etc. Meanwhile, scandal after scandal, cover-up after cover-up is coming out of Hollywood circles. So uh, my suggestion is probably not to get your moral advice from people who have never heard the word no in their life. But that's just me. Uh, let me know what you think in the comments. Hollywood full of is it an insane asylum should they be providing moral guidance to us and will you be watching the oscars as well um and from seven o'clock to half seven i'll be speaking to journalist tony ortega he returns to outward unleashed to brief us on the latest in the world of scientology a big topic on this show uh tony is a journalist who has written about scientology since 1995 He's been a staff writer and editor at numerous publications and was editor-in-chief of The Village Voice from 2007 to 2012. His book about Scientology's most inf infamous campaign of terror to destroy author Pauline Cooper came, about, came out in May 2015. He subsequently teamed up with Paulette to write another book, Battlefield Scientology, that collects some of his best reporting. And in 2015, Tony appeared in Lawrence Wright and Alex Gibney's HBO documentary about Scientology called Going Clear. And he's now widely respected as one of the most knowledgeable journalists on Scientology. Tonight, Tony will be discussing the UK MP Diane Abbott's calls to investigate Scientology. So a nice, good link there to the UK with Diane Abbott and uh, what she's hoping to get done, of course. But it, it's fascinating to me. I don't know if you've had, read the book that led to that documentary going clear the book's called going clear as well that itself was surrounded by a lot of controversy in the uk uh, i'm not sure how much of our audience hails from the uk today uh, so you may not be aware but we have some of the strongest libel laws on the planet and a lot of people who are who are wealthy who would like things to be kept quiet often abuse uh, said laws to get things silenced. So just the threat of litigation in the UK can be enough to silence somebody because it's a very costly, drawn out process, even if you're completely in the right. And even if you manage to prove you're in the right in the court system, it's going to take a huge mental toll. It's going to take a lot of capital, a lot of money, and you may still be in debt at the end of it. So often enough, when big institutions and wealthy people Threat and libel actions, that's enough to shut a lot of people up. You have to think about, is it worth it, I suppose? So I'm always very respectful of people who take on big organizations that have power and money, who are extremely litigation happy, and Scientology falls well within that bracket. And they enacted a libel suit against uh, the author of Going Clear and that book in the UK. 
so for the longest time, you couldn't get hold of a copy of that book. So we had a situation where one of the richest churches in America, or certainly one of the most capable financially, managed to dictate to the UK public what books we couldn't read, which is an extraordinary precedent to set, huge implications for free speech. Uh, luckily, that was finally overturned and uh, we now can have full access to the book. So I'd recommend that if you haven't read it. Obviously, the documentary is extremely popular as well. Let me know in the chat if you all saw Going Clear. Uh, <laughs> TYD boy man uh, just said Scientology spending dollars to harass critics. No way. Yeah, I think I think, and I'm uh, not the most, uh, you know, kind of psychic person, but that may have been sarcasm. Um, yeah, so I mean, you may have seen a few documentaries before on Scientology. People just trying to get interviews with anyone in the church, get anyone on record to speak about what goes on behind closed doors, what the belief system is about, how you traverse various levels, what's required of you, things like that. And they'd be an all round shutdown uh, in terms of access, in terms of people willing to speak. And in fact, they'd almost be a bit of a counter attack in the sense that people would be sent to record and harass the journalist investigating. So it's a, it's a very fascinating organization for many reasons you know high amongst that as well is the association with celebrity uh tom cruise being the chief uh, uh emblem of that and it's big news this week for tom cruise actually which I'll, I'll have to ask my guest about this because i don't know if you realize but tom cruise is, seems to have been exclusively making movies with paramount for the longest time now a lot of people uh, have hypothesized that perhaps that's because doors have been closed on him at other studios because of his behavior and, and association with Scientology. Uh, not the case, it seems. He's just signed an incredibly lucrative, non-exclusive deal to produce and star in movies back over at Warner Brothers now. So it looks like Tom Cruise is, uh, is okay again in mainstream circles. Uh, it's an interesting place, Hollywood. It makes you wonder what you necessarily have to do to be blacklisted for life. You know, is it crime? Is it a criminal record? What kind of criminal record? Uh, you look at someone like Robert Downey Jr., for instance, various drug-related offences, trespassing, all-around dodgy behaviour. He's overcome that. One of the highest-paid actors on the planet, loved and respected by so many people you know the, the the central character of a massive multi-billion dollar franchise that's owned by disney and then you have someone like mel gibson who got drunk and said something anti-semitic that one time in front of police and that appears to have followed him around for nearly 30 years now uh do we think that's justified do you think once you're out you're out um you have what's he called Lee Majors, the actor who, who recently was found guilty of assaulting his partner at the time, he's been swiftly fired from his Marvel contract, unlikely to work in mainstream movies again. Uh, Gary Donnelly's asked, Stephen, why did Prince Harry drop his high-profile libel case against the Mail on Sunday? Uh, I don't know the specific answer to that, but if someone were to drop a libel case, uh, I imagine possible reasons could be they realize they don't have a case maybe uh, that's one also it's possible uh, that 
he's realised the mental toll, the efforts and finances involved just aren't worth it. Um, so it could be that he may have, he may have received some advice in that regard. Uh, you have to kind of choose your battles when it comes to libel in the UK. I mean, if it's if it is really egregious what you've been accused of, then I would suggest defending your name legally. If it's kind of tabloid tittle-tattle, if it's gossip, if it's stuff that'll be forgotten in a week or so, then maybe leave it. I don't know. I'm very unlikely to be in a position where I'll have the capital to sue someone for libel. I've had a bit of a change of heart on that, though, I suppose, because I'm a free speech absolutist, I think. And by that, I mean you should be able to voice your opinion. You should be able to think out loud in your life without censorship, without government oppression, without physical violence, intimidation, harassment. That's how I feel. Now, a lot of people would have caveats and say incitement to violence falls outside, falls outside the purview of free speech. I tentatively agree. But then, you know, that kind of makes you have to accept the idea that humans have no autonomy and we can just command people to commit violence at a whim kind of re kind of removes personal responsibility for me. But maybe it's a good benchmark like where to draw the line. Who knows? Uh, and I was always very against litigation for speech, defamation laws, libel laws, things like that. And because I felt they were easy to abuse and they were used to silence people. And they they are. They absolutely are. But if you are a person that has been genuinely defamed and this has cost you reputationally and this has cost you financially, this has impacted your career and you've exhausted all avenues of other methods such as, you know, asking for a retraction, asking for a right of reply, all those things that should be open to you if somebody's making public claims about you, then I can't fault somebody for going down the routes of uh, litigation. Sometimes now in certain battles, I think it's quite possibly the only option available to you. Fight it in the court. Let the court decide what's true because a lot of people are being made to engage in very important debates almost with one arm tied behind their back because they are defamed as bigots, as perhaps far right, as extremists sometimes. And when you scratch the surface, they've just got an opinion that a lot of people don't like. Uh, so there's my, there's my uh, bit on free speech for the day. It'd be nice to know in the comments where you think the limit falls in terms of freedom of expression. Uh, in America, it's always the people always point to the Justice Wendell Holmes care judge judgment, I believe, and that's that's brought us this this great phrase about shouting fire in a crowded theater. Theater, a lot of people say that's the line. Uh, you know, standing up in a crowded theater where there's a lot of people and shouting fire and causing panic when there is no reason to panic, where there's no actual fire, and a lot of people like to throw that out there as the perfect example of where to draw the line. And what a lot of people don't realize is that the judge, when he handed down that judgment and used that phrase about shouting fire in a crowded theater, was actually referring to a bunch of Jewish activists who were handing out flyers in Yiddish opposing the First World War, I believe. So these were activists that were opposing a military skirmish and I think possibly the Second World War, actually. 
paraphrasing. I don't have my textbooks on me, but look it up. Judge Wendell Holmes. So that phrase was actually used to shut down legitimate protest and what I would consider legitimate speech or what many certainly would in 2024. So it's always worth reminding people of that whenever they throw out this phrase of shouting fire in a, in a crowded theatre. In terms of incitement, that's always a tricky one because I feel like if I was to tell somebody, an individual, to go and do something or say somebody should be hurt or something like that, I still think it's the responsibility of the, of the person not to do that. However, if you put it in the context of a, an angry mob, for instance, outside someone's house and there are people there calling for violence and, and imminent uh, harm, there's a line there for sure that would certainly cross into criminality for me. I'd certainly expect the police to do something if this kind of pitchfork carrying mob uh, were outside my front door demanding my head. So there, I suppose everybody has a line. I suppose that line kind of stops where my neck joins to my body. So maybe that's the, maybe we'll call it the rule of neck uh, for now. But I believe we're going to bring in our first guest very shortly. I'll be speaking to Raja. Ah, Raja, Hi. impeccable timing. Nice to speak to you. How are you, sir? Good evening, Stephen. I'm well, thank you. Nice to speak to you. Um, I was just, just saying before you join me, you're actually not far from my neck of the woods. I'm in the greater Manchester region. I believe you're, are you, are you in Oldham? I know that's a... No, a I, I'm, I'm these days just living outside in a place called Mosley. I, I, I came back here. I'm between where my mother was. Yeah, she passed recently and my daughter okay. was just in one of the Saddleworth villages, but I can't afford to live that way, mate. So mostly it was for me. <laughs> it's nice up Saddleworth, isn't it? Lots of hills. Yeah. Yeah. I, I lived in High Crompton for a little while, which isn't oh, quite old. Yeah. 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 So yeah. that's cool. Well, nice to speak to you anyway. And it's, it's an important topic, grooming guns, and it's one that I've I've kept a keen eye on uh, over the years. Uh, um, it's been quite big in the north of the country, but I don't think there's a part of the country it hasn't touched at this point. Uh, so maybe you could just let our viewers, uh, listeners know uh, what exactly is it you do? What's your background? Yeah, absolutely, uh, Stephen. I, 25 years public service, give or take, mate. Uh, in, in the end, I ended up working for various secretaries of state, advising them, prime ministers, all of that. I'm a northern lad, grew up in Oldham, I looked around, and I didn't like the way in which the race equality narrative was going in the mid-90s, early 90s. It was very much about... Uh, dividing communities and and whatnot. So I, I struggled with that, wrote some policy papers, 97, also uh, objected four years before 9-11 to the growth of what we now know as Al-Qaeda and Islamist extremism, got uh, the attention of a man called David Blunkett, who was education minister and then became home secretary, took me under his wing, yeah. did well by me. I did well by him, if I'm honest with you. He, he taught me a lot and a whole host of that first wave of, of government ministers and uh, what I brought was lived experience. You know, I can, I, I can be, I'm academically all right and all the rest of that, but I had lived experience of the, of the issues I was talking about. And I'm also a product of the multicultural society that I think we all once aspired that people like me would be. And uh, made my way through 20, 25 years, worked across the world. Uh, some projects went well, some projects didn't go well. In the end, I was writing counter-terrorism strategy, counter-extremism strategy. I wrote Manchester Council's uh, counter-extremism strategy. Fell out with the Office for Security and Counter-Terrorism, one of my last projects. We, as a nation, were encouraging the Libyan lads to go overseas and fight with the Al-Nusra Front. I objected to it. Uh, 
Theresa uh, was the Home Secretary at the time, and uh, her, her team and I disagreed. Off I went, and that was the end of my my career that way, really, mate. And then a few years afterwards, of course, the arena bombing happened, and we all know what took place there. Came back in the end, mate, to uh, look after my mother five years ago. Uh, uh, she was diagnosed with cancer. We buried her in Chadderton Cemetery a few months ago. And I had a baby daughter who I wanted to make sure she knew who her father was. So that's what brought me back, mate. Came back and within within weeks, mate, one of my friend's wives got in touch with me. I'm, I'm Bangladeshi. I'm a Muslim. Uh, grew up in Westwood. Those of you who know old and well, Westwood and Coldest, there. that's where I was, was raised. Got in touch with me. There's a big central moster next to the Tesco's. And she was really, really concerned because the chairman of the central mosque was according to her, a convicted sex offender. And naturally she was worried for her children and no one in the community had the, had the nerve, shall I say, to speak out against these guys because they are powerful people. I didn't believe her at first, Stephen, if I'm honest with you, I got in touch with the local authority designated officer, the Lado, as they're known, used the experience I have in, in working in and around local government to try and make sense of what was going on. They went and called on me very quiet, quickly Got a phone call from a police officer friend of mine who said the senior police officer is trying to get hold of you and you're difficult to trace. So I said, I'm not difficult to trace this. Someone give me a call. I'll come and have a coffee with you. Straightforward. <laughs> when I had a coffee with him and it turned out I was right. The chairman of the central mosque was a convicted sex offender. The council knew about it. The police knew about it. No one wanted to do anything about it. And I started digging. And the reason why was because the mosque was involved uh, before I came along, a headline in the Telegraph, I think, involved in uh, providing harvesting postal votes for the M what became the MP, was at the time the leader of the council, a man called Jim McMahon. You'll see the article in the Telegraph. It's not you know, long before I came along. And that the chairman of the central mosque had been a previous candidate of the Labour Party in the local elections. The mosque was all run by local, uh, Labour Party members. One thing led to another. It then transpired that the mosque itself was uh, secretly funded by the council, something that's actually unlawful in this country. Uh, they'd loaned the mosque some money, something like 80 or 90,000 pounds 20 years ago. I'd never, never asked for it back is, is what, the, what came out, Stephen. So we got rid of him. We, you know, we campaigned. I publicly campaigned, Stephen. I got rid of him. Took a lot of, uh, you know, people wanted to beat me up, kill me. How dare I do this? Uh, but... Mate, I've got a kid. I've got a daughter. It's my mate's children who go to that mosque. And I wanted to make sure that this man was nowhere near these children. Uh, we got rid of him. And randomly, an ex-counsellor got in touch with me, a man called Warren Bates. Ex-counsellor got in touch with me. Never heard of him before. Uh, 86, 87 years old he now is. And I remember going to see him. I went to see him the day I dropped my daughter off for her first day in reception, mate. Ten to nine, I'm dropping her off. You know, this child crying, not letting your, uh, in, not letting your leg go because it's her first day in school. Dropped her off, drove to a part of, uh, I think, the people of Failsworth don't like to be called Oldham, but, you know, a place called Failsworth, which is uh, a bit of metropolitan borough of Oldham. Angela Rayner's backyard, yeah, is, right. is what it is. And... He put in front of me, this, this man, a dossier of evidence. That dossier of evidence showed that the council, the BBC, the BBC, the council, the police had all worked together to keep news of grooming gangs hidden from members of the public. I, I looked at it. The evidence was compelling. I went and asked my own questions, uh, cross-reference stuff. 
and I published something. And my, I ask myself every day, Stephen, should I have done that? Because what what I published led to eventually Andy Burnham had been forced to launch his assurance review into the cover up at Oldham. They claim it wasn't a cover up, but confirmed every allegation I made. These allegations included that Shabir Ahmed, the ringleader of the Rochdale grooming gang, the guy they called Daddy, worked for the council, worked for the council for 18 years, had access to children throughout that time, uh, was a senior member of the Labour Party in the town, and the police and the council covered up for him on missed opportunities, whatever the terminology you want to use, mate, on at least nine separate occasions. And he, if he had been apprehended at the beginning, the Rochdale grooming gang, the, the grooming of children in Haywood, would never have took place in those takeaways. So these guys had been at it for a long time, and these guys had been at it for a long time. With the, I use the term reluctantly, but uh, the word I use is intentional blessing, is what I'd say. The blessing of those who control the town. That is, I mean, there's a lot to go on there. And yeah, there's a, I mean, I ask suppose me what one you of... want, mate. I always say to people, ask me what you want. You see, I've got no scripts, none of that. I've been at this for, for five years. They've tried to put me in prison, lock me up, all of that, mate, and they've failed so far because I am what I am. And uh, ask me what you want, and I'll do my best to answer. Well, that kind of ties into what I'm going to ask. So something I've observed over the years is whenever I broach this topic, for instance, or or I point out the fact that the chief victims of these mostly Asian grooming gangs are young, vulnerable, underaged white girls. That just seems to be the truth of the matter. And then I'm obviously labelled a, a racist because I'm white, bringing up this point. So I sometimes look for dissidents within the, the you know the Muslim community, which I would class you as, because I think, well, surely the smears that I get can't be directed at these people. That when I look at the kind of reaction people like you get, it's a million times worse. So I mean, how how do you how do you kind of deal with that? Because you've got on one side perhaps there's an element of the still racist far right in in the in the UK who would who would make judgments about you based on your skin color and then you have perhaps communities that you're a part of which would shun you and try to silence you i mean is it not too much to really take on given all the variables mate i every day every day i wake up and i ask myself why why i did this yeah why i spoke out and i i look at myself in the mirror and i say you know, my I have a daughter. It's as simple as that, mate. I have a daughter, a mixed-race daughter, and I'm, like, thinking, what would my daughter think of a father if if he didn't stand up for what was right? Now, I've been called a racist. I've been called a far-right activist. If you look at, is it Hansard, the parliamentary stuff, you know, where everything's recorded? Mm. Right? Former government advisor, uh, you'll find the last record of my name there by a man called, by the local MP, Jim McMahon, day after Andy Burnham's assurance review was published. Well, we forced the truth out of a mate that, you know, even though the terms of reference were, were hamstrung, even though Maggie Oliver last week made reference to it as a cover up, you know, she said the truth, you know, the Oldham review team were prevented from getting to the truth. Despite that, everything I released was confirmed to be accurate. The MP for the town, the Labour Party MP for the town, who is Shakia Steinman's shadow minister, mate, it was the shadow minister for, uh, for environment then got sacked or removed and he's now back in for local government. He stood up in Parliament, called a, an adjournment debate, what's known as an adjournment debate. Him and Debbie Abrahams, who's the other MP for Oldham, uh, made reference to me as a far-right racist, uh, far-right activist and a racist. Mate, so, you, so we're very clear. My public service includes an MBE when I was 30 years old, 
for fighting racism, fighting extremism. It's just a label to silence critics. It, really, it, it, it makes no difference, mate. They sent hate. Is it hope not hate that organization? I, I yeah. dug it up and I found out it was, you know, very closely linked to the Labour Party. They named me in the top 10 or top 20 racist people in the country. That is insane. I mean, this. I mean, I'd like to keep on this issue of race, if you don't mind, because for my absolutely, absolutely. And my... so we're clear. So we're clear at the beginning because I think it's vital. I, I make this clear at the beginning. These are racially motivated crimes. Yeah. This meets the clear criteria that MacPherson set out that many of us fought for after the death of Stephen Lawrence in terms of how how we record racially motivated crimes. And this these crimes against these children fit every criteria of what would be constituted as a racially motivated crime. Yet we never hear of a politician, a police officer or anyone in the mainstream media referring to these as racially motivated crimes. Yeah, and I think that that potentially ties into something uh, I'm going to just delve into now a little bit. And that's, I suppose, I mean, just to my observation, I was born in the mid 80s. And obviously racism, you know, this country's got a very dark history with with racism, you know, the skinheads, things like that. And it's and racism, I don't think will ever be eliminated. It's still around, but it feels like we've made tremendous progress on that score. Or at least I hope we have. Uh, and it feels a little bit in recent years, thanks to identity politics or progressive identity politics or wokeness, whatever you, you want to call it, we've become race obsessed again. And then this kind of ties into the culture. I, I mean, you would be aware, and you mentioned it at the start of the show, the Manchester Arena bombing. And it was revealed in the investigation after that, that a security guard did actually get eyes on Salman Abedi from about 10 yeah. feet away. And he said in his own words that he felt that like this individual, this suicide bomber was dodgy, but he'd made the decision not to approach him because he was scared of racially profiling. He was scared of being accused of being a racist if he it's was wrong. It's outrageous, isn't it, Steve? It's outrageous, yeah. yeah. So what's, what's happening in culture right now where there's a, a young man who perceives a potential threat and is more scared perhaps in some ways of being labelled a racist than a potential terror attack? Mate, when I was younger, and I remember all the time we'd get stopped in cars uh, in my 20s, yeah, Asian lads would get stopped in cars. That, it was never an issue because we, it, we, when we got stopped, we, we understood two things. One, of course, there's racism. Two, of course, a lot of these guys were driving cars they shouldn't have been driving in terms of what they insured, they were the brothers' cars, all of that sort of stuff. But third, mate, you know what mattered the most was how you were treated once the interaction took place. If the police officer treated you with respect and dignity and you responded likewise, everything was always fine. And what we quickly worked out in our early 20s, mate, what we quickly worked out is we got out of the car, we were pleasant to the police officers. It never went wrong. You know, we, we were respectful in the way we were raised to be respectful to our elders, to people in positions of authority. Every time it went fine, mate. All right. I mean, yeah, I mean, it seems like it's, it's you know, it doesn't matter what what your background is it's very easy to talk yourself in trouble with the police i suppose yeah, of course of course i mean i've been dragged yeah. out of my house three times now uh, by the police and of course the police who come to my house mate they don't want to be here they you know someone higher up has sent the you know sent the pcs and the and the kids out to come and come and arrest me they they come here quite aggressive within 30 seconds i'm very civil very polite and they're in my living room mate i'm still civil and i'm still polite and 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 the and the discourse changes yeah well, it's, it's not a difficult, it's not something difficult to teach our young people, is, is it? You know, the world isn't fair, Stephen. We just need to accept it. The world isn't fair. We will face adversity. All of us will face adversity in some way or another because of who we are and what we are. And, and if we can 
react and respond in a certain way. It won't always work, but if we can react and respond in a polite manner, in a civil manner, we can we can make it easier. Very well said. And uh, you've just made me think of something else, actually, that you, you mentioned at the start of the discussion, and that's how you put a lot of pressure on, you know, the rise of Al Qaeda in this country. And we, you know, you'll be well as an anti-extremist and your experience, you'll be well aware of the various Islamist soft jihadist uh, groups and offshoots of that. And it just recently made the news that Hizbut Tahrir has been prescribed as an illegal uh, organization uh, support for it certainly has now I just wanted to get your opinion on one whether you think that's the right way to approach this and two will it make any difference given how often these groups tend to just rebrand and reform when I worked in that world Stephen I remember his book Taya and what we always did was we we laughed at him you know those of us who worked <laughs> in actually working with Terry we worked with, I worked with terrorists you know I worked with people who'd been recruited by Al-Qaeda and all of that. And the Hizbuk Tahrir lot were the nutcases that, you know, when you go to a village and someone says, take me to your idiot, it, more than likely they'd be a Hizbuk Tahrir member. Yeah. Right. So that's, that's the Hizbuk Tahrir lot. Now, banning them, I just think it's gesture politics, mate. I think right. I, we're, not, we're not getting to the issue. And the issue is, from my point of view, why so many of our young people have of identify with these with an increasingly more conservative form of islam that their parents and their grandparents came to this country to get away from i think there's something else going on there mate that we need to address and banning his book to here isn't going to do it because those guys now will just go somewhere else and more than likely Stephen, they'll go somewhere else that we don't know about or potentially somewhere else which is more than just a bunch of idiots you know, gathering together and and ranting at each other. That's yeah. That's, now, that's, that's my opinion on his book here from when I remember him ten years ago, mate. They they they're not doing anything now that they weren't doing ten years ago, are they? No, I suppose sunlight's the best disinfectant as well. We don't want to force them too underground, do we? We want to keep an eye on what they're saying. And that's how um, we saw his book here. That's how we treated them. You know, there were certain organisations we looked towards, and if 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 people were worried about went in that direction, it was never a a gateway to something else. Those who went towards his book here in the main mate were, you know, they just ranted for a while. And I don't mean it disrespectfully and I don't mean to uh, make, you know, make, in any way make it sound less dangerous than it is, but they'd grew, uh, most of them grew out of it. Yeah. You know, and, well, and I remember white friends of mine going towards the, you know, the BMP or the NF or, you know, I'm, I'm older than you. So I remember the skinheads and stuff like that. And, you know, you'd meet them 10 years, 20 years later, and they'd look back and find, I was a young lad, I was a bit stupid back then. Yeah. I can relate yeah. for sure. Not not to being a skinhead, just to being young and stupid. Yeah, young and stupid. Yeah, young and stupid. And wanting <laughs> well, to belong to someone, wanting to belong to something. Yeah. Yeah, that, that's an interesting thing. And that really obviously ties back into what you're saying about, because you'd expect in terms of sort of religious fervor or conservatism, you'd expect that to decrease by generation. And obviously the inverse of that seems true with large portions of the Muslim community, which is fascinating to me. This just to not belabor this skin issue too much, skin color issue rather, but you, you've obviously described it as a, a, a racist crime, these grooming gangs and the chief targets were vulnerable young underage girls for sure now i just want you to basically make your argument as to why you believe these were racially racially motivated because as people on the flip side of the coin just to kind of steal man their argument would say well it was essentially just a consequence of 
perhaps uh, a majoritively white population and the nighttime economy, perhaps where you'd mostly see vulnerable white girls there. So they'd say perhaps it's not really related to skin color. It's just more about opportunity. Okay. So I've, I've looked at this argument about opportunity and it follows through that. Okay. These girls were either in care and the care system didn't look after them properly. So they had opportunities to be outside of the home when they shouldn't have been outside of the home or they were in neglected families or, you know, dysfunctional families were, they operate you know they could go out and no one no one was no one was parenting them the way they should have done yeah yeah and you look at that and you think okay but then you speak to those who were involved in the grooming if it's about opportunity fine but it wasn't just about opportunity speak to those who were involved in the grooming you look at the testimonies and they are consistently very clear and also the girls are also very clear the survivors are very clear they what was done to them was lit- legitimized because those who were committing the crimes against them, and in, in the case of Rochdale, mate, pre- predominantly an old and predominantly Pakistani, occasionally Bangladeshi, almost exclusively Muslim, is how I describe them. They legitimized what they were doing through uh, a belief that these girls were unclean and been, you know, less than. And they quantified that through culture of promiscuity is what they describe, you know, and and whatnot. And also some of them through the prism of, of religion. And the victims also said the perpetrators consistently referred to them by their ethnicity, dirty, white. Sorry, man, I'm not going to swear, but you understand a whole host of other identities yes. that followed. Yeah. So when the victims are saying uh, that the race was used in a way in which to uh, abuse them, as part of the physical abuse. And when the perpetrators are saying they felt those girls were, had it coming to them, deserved what they got because they were less than as according to their cultural beliefs. And I'm not saying my cultural beliefs or the, anyone who looks like me that I know, mate, but their interpretation of their cultural beliefs or their religious beliefs, these are racially motivated crimes. It gets worse because then you have a, a tier of public sector officials uh, police, from police officers to social workers, council officers, who are, I describe them as a li- fake liberal metropolitan elite is what I call them, mate, who look upon these white working class girls and they see the white working class as also beneath them. So there's, uh, there's another racial dynamic where the white middle classes who are in the key sort of positions in the public sector see the white working class hold them in contempt. You know, so they're they're getting it from two angles. Yeah, that's a great point, because I did a little keyword search after. I don't know, you know, the the, the latest round of news surrounding Shamima Begum, the British citizen currently in a Syrian camp who had left to join the Islamic State. Uh, That's a whole different kettle of fish. But a lot of Labour politicians were using the word that she'd been groomed publicly and kind of advocating on her behalf which whatever your opinion is fine but that's the first time any of them had ever used the word groomed in any context so, context so they accept whatever. they accept the concept of grooming then don't they they accept the concept of grooming so what they only accept the concept of grooming when it suits a, a demographic where they can align themselves with the victim yeah it's wrong so, I mean, isn't it you know it's, well, it's that selective way of looking at something it's, it's grooming when it suits me but the rest of the time it isn't yeah and I don't know if you've seen this very 
trendy, like you say, kind of like a middle class, upper class way of redefining racism. And it's predominantly white people I've yeah. noticed that do this. They'll say that it's racism is is more than just prejudice based on skin skin color. It's you know prejudice plus power. I think they'll say. So when I point out the fact that these uh, grooming gang victims or survivors were vulnerable individuals who were completely powerless, who were preyed upon by much powerful more powerful people uh i ask if that'll fit the definition for some reason it still doesn't seem to fit their def definition of racism and is this one of the reasons perhaps that this has been swept under the carpet because it's an uncomfortable truth that pulls down a lot of people's political worldviews in in the hierarchy of racism in my experience of 25 years of working in this field in across this country mate at the bottom the most oppressed are the white working class in my opinion so that's, I mean, in that's my a massively, not my opinion, in my experience. Yeah. And that would be a massively controversial opinion, I, I imagine, to many. But I, I suppose we, I mean, I, I'm aware of this. I, I'm, I'm white and I'm working class. I would not describe myself. I mean, I've been lucky and fortunate, but I'm often described as privileged and it kind of rubs me up the wrong way uh, for a lot of reasons. But I, I mean, I suppose it's a case if you look at metrics and you can see sort of how academia, academia yeah, is failing. Look at working class boys and academic achievement. Yeah. Look at all of that sort of stuff. You see, you, you see, and you, you know, you, you're working class in the same way I, I was, work, I am working class. And we got out of what we got out of, not because of the discrimination we faced, but by working harder. And, and and that work ethic, mate, you just you've just got to accept it. Life isn't fair for a lot of us. And the way we we overcome the injustices that we face isn't by complaining, it is by accepting them for what they are and and overcoming them the best way we can. And unfortunately, in the context of the hierarchy of race, the white working class, because they are ignored in terms of resources, in terms of racial inequality, in terms of inequality, yeah. But it is perpetuated and it's, mm. you know, it's, it gets worse and worse as each generation goes by. Would you say class is still the biggest divide in the UK over perhaps race? I think if you have the, if you're willing to get beyond your own, uh, for, for many of us, get beyond race, because it's race and race and race is always what's presented as the issue. If you're, if you can look at it beyond that and if you can get beyond that, then yeah, I absolutely think it's class. I, I look at, the working class Asian lads in the area I grew up who are standing on street corners peddling drugs or, you know, up to no good. And I look at the white working class lads I know on places like Hulse Estate or Limeside. They're the same, mate. You know, you, you look at the issues they've got in their lives, what's going on. It's the same. That's a great point. Raja, this has been fascinating. And unfortunately for me, this has flown by because I could have asked you a million more questions. So I'd really appreciate it if at some point in the future you'd be able to come back on and, and speak to us about this more. So much more we can get into. Absolutely, mate. Whenever you want. We didn't even talk about any of the things that we thought. But it's, mate, you know, I'm, I'm happy to share with you. Happy to come on whenever you want because we've got to get past this. No, we've got to get past this and we've got, got to get to a point where all of our children are safe and and hold these politicians to account. And and if we don't do that, I don't know where we're going, mate. I really don't know where we're going. If we can't keep our children safe, then what sort of society are we? It's a great point to finish on. Raja, where can people find more about you, more of your work? The best place is the uh, YouTube uh, channel, mate, Recusant9 is, is what it's on. And also I've got a, a blog of sorts, Red Wall and the Rabble, it's called. They, they abused us by calling us rabble. 
the, the Labour lot. So we just took the name and uh, added it to the Red Wall sort of, consti- you know, parliamentary stuff and said Red Wall and the rabble. That's great. Yeah, to reclaiming it. I like it. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you very much. It's been an absolute pleasure to speak to you. Thanks for having me on, mate. Speak soon. Take care. Take care. Bye. Bye now. Fascinating guest. Half an hour is just not enough for all those topics, unfortunately. But hopefully, uh, as Raj has said, we'll we'll get him back on at some point to go a bit bit deeper into the the grooming gang issue in um, in the UK because it's it's one of the biggest scandals of my lifetime. It's as bad as you think it is. It is worse, and people are very reluctant to speak about it openly. It's it's taboo for some reason, to loudly talk about the exploitation of thousands of of vulnerable uh, underage girls. So I'm going to keep banging the gun about it, but sorry, banging the drum about it. I don't don't really tend to care about the labels thrown at me, but Raj is right in the thick of it and doing some serious work. So it'll be great to get him back on. Uh, We'll be hopefully bringing in my second guest of the evening uh, any moment now to talk about Hollywood. Arden Young, nice to speak to you. How are you? Hi, Stephen. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for joining us. Uh, it's our pleasure. Um, maybe you could just let our listeners and viewers know a little bit about your background. Uh, what What is it you cover and, and what, what keeps you busy? Yeah, absolutely. So I my original work background comes from Hollywood. I, I grew up in the entertainment industry, acting in TV and film as a teen and young adult. And I left Hollywood to pursue journalism. I'm now, um, I have just released an investigation on the adult entertainment industry. I'm using very general terms because I know we're on YouTube. Um, But anyone who's curious, of course, anyone who's curious can check out my Twitter account at Arden underscore young underscore. Excellent. Yeah, so uh, I've just released an undercover investigation into the adult entertainment industry. It's a seven-part series. Um, We'll probably have some more stuff coming out soon just to continue the investigation into online sexual exploitation in general. Um, But yeah, my original work background, I was an actress in Hollywood and open to any questions um, you have or whatever you're curious about, happy to talk more. Well, since you said, uh, so I mean, uh, I mean, I suppose the trope at this point when the when we talk about very young actors and actresses in Hollywood not making it, falling into you know drugs, crime, and worse, it's you know tragic. Uh, but you don't seem insane to me. So, <laughs> how, how did you how did you kind of survive those waters? Well, I left. Um... <laughs> <laughs> Good answer. Uh. You know, I was one of the lucky ones. I I entered Hollywood when I was 12 years old. I began taking acting classes at that age. I began actually working on TV and, and film when I was 15 or 16. And I officially left Hollywood when I was like 21 or 22. So my stint in the industry wasn't all that long. It kind of feels like a long time sometimes, but it really wasn't. Um I had very good parents. My parents cared about me, did not force me to be in the industry. All the pressure that I received was from those around me and and myself as well. Um, So first of all, I had had good parents, which many aren't fortunate enough to have. Um, And I 
I did go through a lot of really tough things during my time in Hollywood, some very inappropriate situations that I witnessed and um, experienced. And then I went through a lot of personality changes uh, while I was there too. So the transition out of Hollywood uh, was very intense and I went through a lot of realizations and I still go through realizations where I think to myself, oh my gosh, I I just had like a weird flashback of something that happened. I never realized that was so inappropriate before or, or how weird that was or how wrong I was about that. And so, um, you know, I, I don't know what it was that made me not super messed up after coming out of Hollywood, but I definitely am a changed person. Um, and the Arden you see today is not the Arden you would have met during <laughs> her time in Hollywood. That's fascinating. So uh, was in terms, I mean, I, I'm very pleased to hear you, you know, praise your parents' influence on that. Uh, for sure, that that definitely makes a huge difference in anyone anyone's life, uh, no no less than Hollywood, uh, I suppose. But is this a career path that you decided you wanted from a young age? Is this something that perhaps your your family pushed you towards? Yeah, so I had a cousin who was in modeling, and she did some acting roles, and I just thought it was so cool at a young age. Um, and it's something that I begged my parents to get me into. So finally, my mom said, okay, you can take acting classes. And from there, through the acting studios I was going to, they, um, you know, had different, like, managers and agent connections that eventually led me to actually start pursuing work as an actor. Um so really the pressure was from any the people I had met getting into the industry and also just from myself because it's what I wanted. Um, and I think my motivations were questionable. I was a kid, you know. Mm. Um, but, yeah, I was fortunate enough that my family wasn't the source pressuring me. That, that's good news. So was there a, a particular incident or a moment where you decided, you know what, this this just isn't for me anymore. Because obviously this is something you wanted to do. You were doing it. You were committed. You'd had acting lessons. So I suppose, two-part question, I mean, do you ever miss it? You know, the craft, the the experience, the expressing yourself as an actress. Uh, and two, what, what was it that, what was the revelation or the moment where you thought, you know what, this just isn't for me anymore? Yeah, so sometimes I do miss it. I miss the craft. I actually... Um, for a short time, I was offering private acting coaching to a couple of super nice young girls um, who come from a very traditional, you know, Christian family. Their parents don't want them taking like a Hollywood acting lesson. So I provided them and coached them through material that did not conflict with their personal values. Um, and I made sure that I created a healthy environment instead of like a crazy typical Hollywood environment in an acting class. Um, but sorry, the second question was the moment, yeah, the moment that I realized that I wanted to leave. Um, it was a process. I think that maturing as a person and kind of becoming aware of all the issues in the world that were so much more important and so much larger than I would ever be. 
Mm. And um, wanting to be a part of that instead of focusing on um, propping myself up and, and being motivated by my own vanity, which is really what it was. I was motivated by my own vanity, um, coupled with the fact that due to I, I kind of had a developing moral compass in my, I would say, early 20s, very late teens and early 20s, that I started drawing the line in the sand with my uh, agents at the time saying, hey, I'm not open to this type of sexual content. I'm not open to sorcery, witchcraft, dark spiritual content. I don't want to get involved in those types of projects. Um, And I don't want to get involved in content where I have to say this, this, and this, or whatever. Um, There's certain boundaries and certain like words I'm just not comfortable saying. And from that point on, um, my agent dropped me. (laughs) Yeah. That, that, that Harry Potter audition gone. (laughs) Right? No, like I didn't have a chance. Yeah. Okay. So, I mean, just to pivot to your uh, investigative journalist uh, journalism uh, work, which is, is, I don't know what's more exciting to me, kind of Hollywood or that, two things that I kind of really, really like. Uh, and what, I mean, what made you think that the porn industry rather or the adult entertainment industry was something worth investigating? What What's the angle here for you? Yeah, it was actually a New York Times article written in 2020. Um, it's titled The Children of P-Hub. You could fill in the blank. Um, and it detailed underage victims' struggles to get their abuse videos taken off of the platforms. And these platforms alongside the abusers who uploaded these videos are mutually monetarily benefiting off of that content. So um, the adult platform gets a cut as well as the person uploading the video. And so there is a slew of complaints um, of people reaching out over the course of sometimes years and the platform not um, taking these videos down. So the uh, P-Hub went through kind of a scandal where they were forced to change some things internally to try to prevent that from happening again in the future. However, there was a lot of talk about how these changes were actually surface level and there were still things like this happening behind the scenes that just weren't being talked about anymore because the news cycle had moved on type of thing. So it was... um, my goal to prove that this is still happening um and they're this company is knowingly profiting off of illegal videos and so that's what we did i mean that that's first of all that that's great work because i actually now you've referenced that article i do remember it but when it was published and i, I suppose that it was the category of that kind of you know on the website which would be considered like revenge uh you know often filmed by bitter ex well f- filmed by people who are bitter exes and uploaded yes. and, and i mean that can be an in- i can't imagine of anything more distressing perhaps for a young girl knowing that that's there and there's all- there's a huge amount of time to, to take to get it taken down i mean and, and did you am i right thinking that a lot of a number of these people were, were underage as well did you say yes a number of them were um i think the main girl they featured in the article was only 14 at the time that her video was recorded and um 
Oh, many of these videos are in kind of that revenge porn category. Um, but a lot of these are kind of, there's this developing term, it's called sextortion, where a young victim is contacted online by someone they don't know or someone they do know, basically um, coercing them to send a nude video or a sexual video. And that first video or image is used to threaten them into sending more and more extreme content. And those videos are are trafficked and um, disseminated online for profit. I mean, I, I've heard, I mean, I think I've read stories about people either taking their own life or attempting to when this is this yes. has happened to them. I mean, what's the legality in the, in the States then? Because I don't know if you're aware, but we had a quite high profile case in the UK not so long ago where some reality TV stars, I think he'd secretly film, filmed himself having intercourse with a, you know, consensual intercourse with a, right. uh, a, a partner in his garden or yard, I think you'd say, mm-hmm. on kind of the security can. And once they mm-hmm. broke up, he actually uploaded that. To, yeah. and, and let people view it and he actually served he got prosecuted and served jail mm-hmm. time for that as well i mean is, is this similar laws in the in the u.s that you're aware of you know the law hasn't really caught up to technology here in the u.s um as f- there's a lot of gray areas and there's mm. a, a lot of new emerging ways that someone can be sexually exploited online so for example there with ai there's um, an increasing amount of, you know, someone is a public figure or even someone just has like social media and someone will, will capture the image of their face and superimpose it um, onto a pornographic image. And, and unfortunately, we're hearing more and more suicides among teens um, where that type of content is circulating at their school and it's being used to humiliate them and bully them and and this another young girl i think just a few days ago there was a, another report and she unfortunately took her own life because of that so unfortunately here in the US there's so much gray area um that the revenge porn stuff it really is rarely prosecuted that's really sad it's interesting i was having a discussion about this the other day with family in fact because i've got young teenage nieces and they're they're not as interested in alcohol at age 16 and 17 in the way that i was and my friends are it seems Mm -hmm. like there's a cultural shift it was kind of hypothesizing reasons for that and obviously the the health more health conscious more informed and smarter than i was essentially as well but also there's this aspect of having to contend with the possibility of making mistakes doing things that are embarrassing and having that captured in perpetuity on social media on on camera phones and and things like that so it seems like do you think perhaps that plays an aspect into some of this as well i think so too yeah i really do um in this digital age like anything anyone does could it it exists out there in the ether you know what i mean Mm. um even when i was growing up like i i kind of you know, anything that you texted to anyone, my mom always told me, like, it could be on the front page of the New York Times the next day. So always act like anything you're typing, like your grandma's going to see it the next day in the newspaper. So I had to be very hyper aware of that. So hopefully this generation is aware of the fact that anything that they do or record or say um, could be public or could be used against them in some way, but it is a really sad dynamic because 
it, it almost puts a sense of like paranoia mm. on this generation. Um, but yeah, like I would tell young people definitely don't be sending stuff you wouldn't want in public um, to, to others. Like if you have a boyfriend, even if it's consensual, like it's better to just not. Yeah. Think, think of it as getting a tattoo perhaps. Yeah. I mean, so, I mean, obviously you would have had to do a lot of research for this and it just so happens that I imagine this consisted of watching a lot of porn and I, I'm just wondering what that does to you, like mentally, uh, what your experience, yeah. what kind of trends you're seeing and what your attitude, I mean, I mean, it might be just a good to get you, if you don't mind sharing this, what your attitude to porn was before this investigation and whether it's changed since this investigation? Yeah, that's a good question. So I really tried not to watch the adult content. Hmm. I um, I did have to go on the sites to check certain things, um, like if they took certain credit cards, MasterCard, Visa, and I was also checking to see if they had like any sort of age verification block on the site. Um, and then I also looked at like trending categories as well. Um, but my going into this, I had always been uncomfortable with porn and I had never liked adult content and I, I never wanted any type of participation as a viewer in adult content, but I had always felt pressured to um, approve of it or enjoy it or acknowledge it as like a good, healthy, uh, liberating type of thing. Mm. Um, and maybe that comes from Hollywood, you know, anything goes, right? But I always felt that pressure um, to not be a prude, you know what I mean? And, and, just, and just acknowledge the fact that some people need this content, this is healthy, and some people are lonely and you can help you explore and find new things you like and all that kind of stuff. So my attitude going in was like, I personally didn't like adult content. And then coming out of it, my views against adult content is even stronger. Hearing all of these admissions come from the horse's mouth, from the people creating this adult content for the viewer they do not have the viewer's best interests at heart. This, they're not trying to serve up a product that's healthy and, and celebrating sexualities. They are creating a product that they acknowledge is addictive, has unknown, unexplored health implications. Um, it, they say it cannot be healthy. They don't know the implications of it. Um, and a lot of their attitude toward it is surprisingly negative, but they're still there shrugging their shoulders saying, well, it makes a lot of money. So, yeah, I think, um, so I suppose, I mean, maybe I'm just getting older, but I suppose the, the kind of third wave feminist movement would talk about, you know, sex positivity, or they'd be, they'd claim that you can only really be a true feminist if you're in favor of protecting sex workers or often right. championing that as a kind of progressive career path for women. And uh, I, I'm, I'm still like a left-leaning liberal. I'm getting the impression you're perhaps a conservative Christian. I'm not sure, given given some of the, the issues you had with perhaps like uh, mystical witchcraft and stuff like that in Hollywood. I might be wrong there. You can correct me on that in a minute. Yeah. Um, 
but I'm slowly coming more to the centre on this issue. I've speaking to a lot of feminists now, old school feminists who are kind of pushing back and saying, you know, the adult entertainment industry, it's a huge mistake to push that for women. It's, you know, it's exploitative, yeah. it's wrapped up in abuse, uh, et cetera. And I'm just wondering where where is that line but in, in female empowerment between sort of saying if you if that's what you want to do, go ahead, uh, versus kind of outright preventing them from doing so. Yeah, I, I'm of the thought that I don't think it's empowering to sell your body. Hmm. Um, it is an industry that caters to men and and fulfills a man's desires. And you're doing something that you would never even think of doing with that person unless they're paying you. I don't think that's empowering. Um and so I don't think sex is work. I don't think work should be sex. And uh, that's my thought on it. Um, but that being said, I am not here to um, demonize consumers of pornography. I believe that the average consumer of pornography, if they're a legal adult, would have a huge problem if they knew that the, the adult content that they're consuming involved uh, you know, exploitation or child exploitation, if they knew that the person had not consented, I think most people would be horrified. Um, I really do think that the vast majority of consumers of adult content want the people that they're watching to both be consenting adults. Um, so I'm not here to tell people that they're a horrible person for watching pornography. I am here to say that the company that has a complete monopoly on North American adult content does not have their best interests at heart and monetizes knowingly profits off of abuse content and underage abuse content. So this is a huge problem that many people aren't aware of how deep ALO, which is the parent company of P-Hub, um, how deep all their tentacles go. They own hundreds of sites and they do everything from write, shoot, produce, advertise, distribute. Um, from beginning to end, they handle all things adult. That's a really good answer. And I suppose, I mean, I was I just incidentally, I was interviewing an ex-adult film star a few months ago, and they said when and this is quite some time ago, I think this is the VHS era. Yeah. And they were telling me that, uh, you know, there was so much red tape and a million forms to sign in and there was so much, you know, so much regulation. And now with the Internet, it's essentially the Wild West where, you know, anything can be filmed and uploaded in moments. I mean, is, is that what is that one of the main problems here with it being chiefly Internet based now? And, and what's the answer to this? Is it more regulation? Yeah, I mean, um, the technology is out there to prevent these abuse videos from being re-uploaded a bunch of times. It's called fingerprint technology. It's applied to copyrighted material. So if I was to go on YouTube and upload um, a clip of The Lion King, it would immediately be taken down. Like, they wouldn't be having that. And it's because it's fingerprinted. So the issues that these these victims and survivors were having with getting their abuse content taken down was um, this company, P-Hub, has this technology internally for copyrighted materials, but they're not applying it for victims. Um, and where, where they were applying it for victims, it would take so much poking and prodding and and having lawyers get in contact 
and all that. So um, they're very, very slow to apply it to those who actually need um, this fingerprint technology. Uh, me personally, as far as underage children viewing pornography, I don't believe it's too much to ask for these ID laws to be put in place. Um, the adult industry likes to argue that it's a violation of everyone's First Amendment right, but they're the first to send me legal threats saying that I need to take down the videos that I recorded completely <laughs> legally of their employees. So they're trying to limit my free speech. Um, <laughs> so I really don't think their uh, concern is free speech here. That, that, I think that's another interesting point, which we might not have justice the time to do it justice, rather. But this idea, because these, like you mentioned, the the, the website in question is hugely influential. It's got a lot of fingers and a lot of pies. It's making a lot of money. It produces it. You know, it, it rakes it in for selling sex, essentially, which is the oldest oldest trick in the book, I suppose. But you're then going up against this on a corporate platform, YouTube, a lot of the time, I imagine. You don't really stand a chance against a big corporate body like them if they say this is, you know, uh, defamation perhaps, or this is, mm -hmm. you know, wh wh however they want to describe it. Are you going into this argument a little bit with a hand tied behind your back because they are so so influential and big? You know, um, I don't know, and maybe I'm just like stupid or crazy, but I decided to investigate this, and once. I realized that my hypothesis was correct once I had all these employees on tape. I felt like it was my moral duty to release it and not be a coward and hold back and, and get scared. Like, you know, it is possible in the future I will be legally pursued by one of the most powerful companies to ever exist. Um, however, it doesn't seem likely at this point that they are going to go through with actually suing us because it would open them up to discovery. Um, and I also don't think they want to create more attention on this than is already there because them pursuing us is almost like legitimizing everything we're saying. Have you had any sort of official response to them? Have they they responded in, a, in any official capacity? Apart yeah, from they've, they have responded to some of our requests for comment um, with a lot of like really weird like false accusations like they said that we illegally recorded their employees um which is not true because canada has completely one party recording laws um across the board so everything was done in a public place and, and we have canadian legal counsel you know making sure everything they do is legal so they're, I feel like they're trying to like throw spaghetti at a wall essentially and seeing what sticks and just saying whatever. They also said that we non-consensually recorded and uploaded videos of their employees, which I think is so ironic. That's rich. That's very rich. Yeah, yeah exactly. Oh, and Stephen, I also wanted to mention, by the way, I love Harry Potter. I, it wasn't like, <laughs> that wasn't the issue. I was being asked to do like, literal demon conjuring like setups in in the scene and um like just very witchy um you know she's a witch seductress kind of character uh, okay. and that i wasn't okay with like i love harry potter if harry potter was being cast while i was like acting i totally would have loved to do i, that. I, I completely misinterpreted them comments because sometimes <laughs> i hear from very kind of 
very very conservative Christians who are who are, will oppose kind of witchcraft and wizardry in their fiction. On, I think fantasy is very grounds. fun. I I'm actually watching Harry Potter right now, um, and I really like it. Excellent. Yeah, you should come to the UK and check out the studios if you've never done that. That's that's great fun. <laughs> I would love to. Yeah, I've done that once, and I, I'm. I just put it out there. I'm not a massive Harry Potter fan, but I did turn into like a seven-year-old kid. Totally. It's just so fun. It, like it, I love great. fantasy kind of stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And, and J.K. Rowling's become somewhat of a hero anyway, just for a staunch uh, advocacy of kind of women's rights on. on yeah. Uh, on I really platform. like what, what she's had to say. Yeah. Cool. Well, Arden, this is, this has flown by. I'm, I'm really grateful for the work you're doing okay. because I can't think of, anything a lot, lot more important than, important than kind of getting content removed down of illegal activity in, in, you know of a sexual nature especially including minors that's just a horrible dark corner of the world many of us don't necessarily have to think about but I'm, I'm very glad you are um is there anything else you'd like to point people towards before i let you get back to what's left of your day yeah absolutely just link up with us on twitter arden underscore young underscore and then you'll see the sound investigations page links in my bio um, some real quick exciting news is that two of the subjects we recorded in the undercover videos have been subpoenaed subpoenaed in a new child sex transportation case, if you get what nice. the meaning is, um, in a class action suit out of Alabama. So they will have to take the witness stand now. That's great. Really important work. Thank you very much for speaking to us. Despite the dark subject matter, I've, I've really enjoyed speaking to you. Thank you so much, Stephen. Likewise. Take care. Bye. I love proper investigative journalism. That's that's my kind of dream as a human. That that's when I daydream about what I might be. That's who I am in my head. I, I gravitate towards people who really get get stuck into an issue and, and get results. And that's that's a hugely important issue. So definitely check out Arden's work there. I believe much of that will have been put in the comments, so you can find that nice and easily thanks to our superhuman producer ash I'm not saying he produces superhumans that that'd be weird uh we should be bringing our next guest any moment uh when he's ready tony thanks for joining us how are you thanks for having me Stephen. that's no, our pleasure entirely uh scientology is always a massive issue on this channel everyone's fascinated with it for millions of reasons so i, th I think we might just start by maybe getting a bit of your background. What's your uh, what's your background, and what what is it about Scientology that keeps you so busy? Sure, I, Sean has had me on a couple times before. I'm a former editor in chief of the Village Voice in New York City. I've been investigating and writing about Scientology since 1995. Uh, these days, I tend to write mostly for my own Substack, TonyOrtega.substack.com, but I also write articles about Scientology for Rolling Stone magazine and uh, the Daily Beast. And uh, I think the reason why you're having me on today is we have some news about a development in England um, that a MP, Diane Abbott, has uh, indicated that she has asked the HMRC to begin a widespread investigation of Scientology and its tax status in England, which is really big news. And today, um, I had a statement from Leah Remini about how much she thinks this is a big development in the um, in the kind of struggles she's had with Scientology and wanting it to be investigated uh, for for you know years of abuses that we know about, and there may be many more that we don't know about. So it's a really interesting new 
development. It's a very interesting time to be looking at Scientology. There are a number of lawsuits going on right now that are really interesting. So that's the kind of thing I look at. I write about Scientology every day. I took it on as a beat many years ago and a lot of interesting stuff happening with it right now. There's a lot there, isn't there? And I suppose, yeah, it's, it's quite encouraging when a politician raises these concerns. And what, what is the chief concern regarding tax? I mean, is it, the, is it does it have a charitable status in the UK or a kind of a re- religious it's, exemption? You know, it's, really, it's really complex in England and it's very strange. Um, yeah, because <laughs> yeah. It, is, it, is right. never, it has never really gotten the charitable status that it wants, but it does have, you know, you have a much more complex setup over there than we do in the United States. And the United, the United States is kind of all or nothing. And they did get that tax-exempt status in 1993 in the U.S. Um, But in England, it's kind of more complex. There's different levels of it. They've never really gotten the charitable status they want. But they get around some issues with tax by using an Australian address. The, The Scientology facilities in England are under a uh, corporation by the the uh, the name Kosreki, C-O-S-R-E-C-I, which stands for Church of Scientology Religious Education Corporation or something like that. And it actually has a South Australia address. And they use that to get around some of the issues in England. That's the number one thing that's always been very strange. But also recently they got, they got uh, Scientology did uh, give them, I mean, uh, uh, the English government did give Scientology a little break as far as uh, declaring Scientology facilities as houses of worship, so they get to charge less tax or something. like I don't know exactly what it is. But um, there's an ex-Scientologist in London by the name of Alex Barnes-Ross, who has been very active lately speaking to uh, local public officials. And he wrote to his own MP last September uh, and asked her, would you please look into this? And she did better than that. She wrote back to him and saying that she's not only going to look into that most recent small development, but that she's asked HMRC for a wider investigation of Scientology in general. I mean, this is the kind of thing we've been hoping for in the United States, for a national lawmaker to ask our IRS, hey, just look into it. Why why isn't somebody at least investigating these controversies uh, and, and reported abuses that Scientology is able to you know, rip families apart and surveil people with tax exempt money. So it's really a pretty exciting development. Yeah, that's a great point. I think I think the power of a written letter to an elected official can't be, you know, understated. Uh, it's, a, it's an old school way of doing it. Seems to have seems to have an effect for sure. So I'll be I'll be following that keenly and seeing where that leads because obviously the very powerful, influential organization. I think I was talking at the start of the show about the book Going Clear and how that was wrapped up in some you know libel legal case for in the UK for the longest time before it could be released. Uh, so there's Scientology kind of flexing its uh, lawfare in that sense. Just to get something a, a bit tabloidy out of the way, if you wouldn't mind indulging me, I suppose one of the greatest um, fascinations people have with Scientology is the the link to celebrity. No, no you know, Tom Cruise being the chief emblem above that. And it, it was kind of hypothesized a while back that Tom Cruise was kind of only making 
movies with Paramount, for instance, because they would they were really the only studio that would still have him. He'd kind of had the door closed on him everywhere else for his kind of weird Scientology beliefs. And then we've just had some news these last few weeks that he's signed some hugely lucrative, non-exclusive deal with Warner Brothers, a massive studio. Are we read? Can we read too much into this? Is there anything we can read into this? Look, I think Tom Cruise is a very, there's a, there's no question he's a very successful actor. He's got, he's an industry in, of his of his own. I mean. Uh, I think the fact whether he signs with this studio or that studio has nothing to do with Scientology. It just has to do with his ability to to generate box office. And he's had a huge couple of years with Top Gun 2 and 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 the, the latest Mission Impossible. So I don't think we should read anything into that. The biggest news about Tom Cruise was that last year, the Daily Mail put out this garbage report. They found out that Tom had not flown his helicopter to East Grinstead in three years. Well, there's been a pandemic going on and some other reasons why he might not have been doing that. They then concluded this meant that, you know, East Grinstead is where Scientology has their UK headquarters. So because Tom had not flown his helicopter there recently, the Daily Mail concluded, oh, he must be leaving Scientology. They came, they came up with that without consulting any leading ex-Scientologist like Mike Rinder or Claire Headley. They didn't even ask. If they had... Mike or Claire would have pointed out, look, Mike, uh, Mike, I mean, Tom Cruise's best buddy is David Miscavige, the leader of Scientology. David Miscavige has not been in East Grinstead in three years. So there's no reason for Tom to fly there. The fact that he's not flying there doesn't mean he's left the church. But the Daily Mail never checked that out. All the other tabs jumped in with both feet, Stephen. I mean, all last summer and fall, all we heard from everybody is, well, Tom Cruise has left Scientology. There's no question. And I kept saying, you guys are basing this on zero evidence. And November 3rd, David Miscavige finally made his big return to England, went to East Grinstead. And who flew him there? Tom Cruise in his helicopter. Okay. I mean, there's just it's, what people don't understand about Tom Cruise and Scientology is that Tom really believes this stuff. He is a true <laughs> believer. Tom Cruise believes that L. Ron Hubbard is the greatest human being who has ever lived and that David Miscavige is the greatest human being currently on this planet. That's what Tom Cruise believes. He's not in it because they're blackmailing him or any of that. He really believes this stuff. Now, as to which studio he's signing with, I think that's a separate deal. I really do. That's a a very good answer. And the very last thing I'll ask on Tom Cruise, and if you'll just indulge me further, it seemed like there was a period in his career where he'd reference Scientology in interviews, or rather he'd be prompted to, he'd be asked about it. And uh, this seemed somewhat of a PR disaster in the mainstream for many people. And it doesn't seem to have happened since. However, he still maintained the same amount of press junkets, you know, car red carpet walks, you know, talk shows, things like that. Do you think there's a policy in place with him now where he's he kind of stipulates not to ask him about his faith? That's a great question. There is definitely a policy in place with all celebrities. They are not allowed to discuss what Scientology is. I've talked to people who were Scientologists, uh, celebrities in Scientology, and they told me this is what they're trained. You have to understand what Scientology is, is this weird past life therapy where you're trying to remember who you were billions of years ago on other planets in order to help you today and gain superpowers. But they can never say that. And so what they're trained to do is say, 
you know, oh, it's it's helped me in my life. You should get a book and read about it. That's it. And you can go back and roll tape. And that's all John Travolta or all these other people have said time and time again. It's helped me in my life. You should get a book. They cannot talk about what it actually is. The interesting history is in t- uh, between when uh, Tom Cruise got together with Nicole Kidman, she she had was gung ho. She got into Scientology very heavy at first, but then she pulled away. And between 1992 and 2000, she pulled Tom out with her. Now, we didn't know this at the time. It only came out later. So for several years, Tom was away from Scientology. When those two finally broke up in 2000, David Miscavige made it job one to get Tom back in. Between 2000 and 2004, they not only worked on him, they spun him up to what he was the most enthusiastic Scientologist on the planet. That's when Dave got the great idea, let's unleash him on the world. And so late 2004, early 2005, they literally made Tom their ambassador to the world. That's when you saw those disastrous interviews he did with Matt Lauer on the Today Show. He did one in Australia. He was jumping on Oprah's couch. It (laughs) completely backfired on them. And so they reverted. He shut up about it like he's supposed to, like all the celebrities do. And so every once in a while, a reporter will shout a question from the red carpet or something. And he'll give the usual, oh, you know, it's a wonderful thing in my life. You should read a book. But that's it. They they made that one experiment early in 2005. It backfired on them. So now they're back to saying nothing. And that confuses people. They think maybe Tom really wants out. Maybe he's not into it. But no, that again, that is their usual policy. Celebrities can't say anything. But we see more and more evidence. Tom is as dedicated to it as he ever was. That's a great answer. So much more than I was expecting on that, Tony. Thank you. So, I mean, it might be a good point to let people in the chat know if you've got some questions for Tony, get them in now and I'll put the best ones to him. Um, you mentioned David Miscavige at, at the start of the chat. Maybe you can explain to us who Shelley Miscavige is then and why there's so much mythology surrounding the existence of this one woman. Right. So Dave, Dave and Shelley both grew up in Scientology. They were children in Scientology. They got married uh, in 81, I think, something like that, late, and, and when they were pretty young. And then after L. Ron Hubbard died in 1980, uh, to, in fact, it was, um, it was 1986 today. Today is the anniversary of the death of L. Ron Hubbard. Oh. Um, then uh, D- David Miscavige pushed his way into becoming the leader of the, of the organization at that point. And then for the next several years, he and Shelley ran it together. He was, he's known as chairman of the board, COB. She was, her title was literally COB assistant. But then in the uh, early 2000s, things were starting to change. And in, we believe in the late summer or early fall of 2005, Dave made her disappear. And I mean, this was a woman who was helping to run the organization and was at all the events with her. And she's not been seen in public since 2005. She went to the funeral of her father in the summer of 2007, and a few Scientologists saw her there. But that's it. Where has she been? We believe she's been held at a mountain compound in the San Bernardino Mountains since then. There's a new tantalizing piece of evidence suggesting that he moved her to an even more remote Scientology secret compound up near the uh, uh, California-Oregon border. I have not confirmed that piece of information yet. That that information was posted anonymously, anonymously by somebody. I have not been able to confirm it independently. But either way, we really do believe that David Miscavige has kept his wife, Shelley, out of sight 
since 2005. And Scientology, anytime they're asked about it, they'll just say, oh, she's on a special assignment. She has nothing to say. Um, but people who knew her, people who worked with her, tell me there's no question she is a prisoner. And, and I mean, John Brousseau, a man who was David Miscavige's brother-in-law for 16 years and who worked closely with Tom Cruise, told me that Dave will keep her where she is until she dies. And I think that's I mean, true. But I do think she's still alive. I really do. Well, yeah. I mean, I was just going to say you. I mean, you use the word prisoner, and it, you know, it sounds it does sound like a hostage situation almost. Is there is there no sort of legal aspects of this where it would be perhaps deemed necessary to carry for the authorities to carry out a welfare check? Right. So, I mean, part of the situation is Shelley may be resigned to her fate, and that's part of the situation is if she doesn't, you know, doesn't try to leave. Uh, I was contacted by some family members of hers uh, about six years ago, and they had read some of the things I'd written about this, and they were concerned. And I told them where she is. I said, you know, she's uh, she's in this compound in the San Bernardino Mountains. They went to the San Bernardino Sheriff's Office, showed that connection to her, her family connection, and asked for a welfare check. And the Sheriff's Office refused, saying we don't have enough information she's there. They told me that I then wrote a letter to the sheriff's office explaining all the information why we believe she was there, and they blew me off. I mean, I know this is hard to believe, but law enforcement agencies are literally afraid of the Church of Scientology and its hired thugs, and they will not do anything about this. And David Miscavige has gotten away with banishing his wife to a small mountain compound, either in the San Bernardino Mountains or possibly up near the Oregon border, since 2005, Stephen, it's incredible. I mean, so basically, I mean, this is a situation where money trumps the law, and I'm just wondering, what, what, what? How can we explain the the main uh, source of their funds, really? Because uh, I just. Scientology to me, I mean, this may just be a very naive UK perspective, but it doesn't feel that particularly widespread. I imagine that's potentially different stateside, but what's the main source of their income? No, it's a tiny organization. It's, it's not much bigger in the US. I mean, at its height around the year 1990, they had maybe 100,000 active members around the world. They've never had the millions that they claim, never. Today, they're probably down to only about 20,000 active Scientologists. However, they have tax-exempt status. They pay no taxes. They pay their workers pennies an hour. And they have these wealthy members that turn over millions in donations. The last time we were able to get any kind of tax documents um, that were related to their, their value it looked like Scientology was worth three or four billion dollars. Now, I know that doesn't sound like that much compared to, say, the Mormon church in America, which we now learn has this hundred billion dollar secret fund. Right. But there are legitimately 30 million Mormons around the world. Scientology with three or four billion in reserves and only 20,000 members. That makes it per capita the richest religious organization in the world. They have so much money that David Miscavige has sole ownership of that he can spend on attorneys endlessly, private investigators. And people know this. See, you know, people have asked me, why doesn't the IRS do something? Why doesn't the government do something? Mike Rinder explained it best one time. He said to me, Tony, you have to understand, if you're at the IRS and you're trying to decide whether to have an, an investigation 
to review Scientology's tax exempt status, and you're some middle manager reporting to the director, you have to decide, are you ready for that to be the rest of your career? Because that's all you're going to be doing for years is battling with Scientology. Their private investigators will research every part of your life and they will make it hell. That's why governments don't do anything about it. It's, I mean, it's, it's a great point. And just thinking of the wealth and then the man at the top who seems solely responsible for all the beneficiary of all that, David uh, Miscavige. Is there anything we can point to that would basically indicate to us, okay, this is a guy who's taking liberties? I mean, uh, some a comparison perhaps in my mind, I don't know how you feel about this, would be someone like Joel Osteen, this kind of televangelist, mega church guy with the you know the private jet, the several houses, the flash cars, things like that. It seems obvious that he's doing very well from his grift, for want of a better word. Is there anything flashy about David Miscavige we can point to, or do you believe this is a man who is you know hundred percent committed to uh, Scientology as an oh, as a no, philosophy? He, de he, he definitely lives the high life. There's no question, and we've talked to people that worked closely for him that say that you know. I mean, they're preparing meals for him day and night, really expensive top meals that he, he never eats, you know, uh, because they make way too much food. Um, he spends incredible amounts of money on his clothes. He's got private jets he takes all over the world. Uh, I just wrote a story um, this last fall with somebody who was in one of those flights with him and describing what it was like to fly from California to England. Um, on this private jet with, with uh, David Miscavige. He lives a very lavish lifestyle. Uh, in other ways, in other ways, he is uh, very, um, he has a very limited life because he doesn't go, he, he can't just go walking out of the street. You know, process servers are looking for him. Uh, he's paranoid anyway. Um, he can't just pick a restaurant and go out. So, you know, there are things about his life that are limited, but in his world, he lives very high. Okay, that's a great answer. And I'm um, not surprised about the answer at all. Uh, I've got a few good questions in the chat for you. Um, I'm, not sh I'm not familiar with the individual reference in the question, but I'm taking a huge gamble on the hope that you will. Uh, Cosmic Diana's asked, I saw Dr. Berg's son speaking out that their parents are in Scientology. Is it true? And can he just be innocent or it... Or it means he's evil if he's in. Uh, would be grateful for an answer. Thank you. Right. Uh, Ian Rafalco is the son uh, of Dr. Is it Eric Berg, I believe, is the, is the well-known YouTube chiropractor. A lot of people follow his advice and don't even realize he's not a physician. He's a chiropractor. Ian Rafalco is really an interesting guy. I've had him, you know, I've talked to him for my, my website before. Um, he has exposed things about his dad. No question. Berg is a big-time Scientologist, big donor. There's no question about it. And and yeah, he doesn't want people talking about that. So I would definitely listen to Ian Rafalco, check out his uh, various feeds. He puts out some really interesting information on TikTok and YouTube. Okay. Um, some random guy called Ash has asked, what impact do you think the Danny Masterson trial has had on Scientology, Scientology's reputation? Oh, I think it's been pretty big. I, I actually was the first one to break the story that Danny was under investigation by the LAPD back in uh, March 2017. And then I basically covered that story every day all the way through his, both of his trials. I was in court for both trials. Uh, and the big one of the big questions I had was, OK, Danny Madison is a, a Scientology celebrity. The women he was accused of attacking were all Scientologists at the time. Uh, other women he attacked were not Scientologists. 
uh, the big question in my mind was how much of these court proceedings are going to involve Scientology? And it turned out there was a lot of Scientology in those proceedings, Stephen. I mean, even more than I expected. Scientology was a huge part of those preliminary hearings and both trials. We heard over and over again about these women would go to the church after they'd been attacked by him. They were made to be, they were punished. They were punished for being victims. Scientology did what it could to protect Danny Masterson. That came out day after day. Scientology denied it. They looked terrible. And it's ongoing. Not, not only was Danny Masterson convicted of two counts of forcible rape, and he's now serving 30 years to life in prison, but there are now civil lawsuits against Danny Masterson and the Church of Scientology by these same victims. I mean, it's an ongoing nightmare for Scientology, and the press has been brutal. So I, I think it's been a really, really tough couple of years for Scientology, thanks to Danny Masterson, because he's exposed so much about the way Scientology will protect a celebrity in trouble, and Scientology will protect a, a horrible predator who's, who's, who's attacking their own members. I mean, I, I said many times, th this, the, this story is about a Scientologist celebrity who preyed on Scientologist women because he knew the church would protect him. It's just horrible. That's a great answer. And it immediately makes me wonder about what an organization needs to do to end itself and its own reputation. I mean, you mentioned the the heinous criminal behavior uh, there. You know, uh, uh, is there anything Scientology could do that could end it? Because, I mean, uh, uh, an easy comparison, maybe perhaps some may think it's an unfair one, but if you look at the Catholic Church, for instance, the scandal, the size of that, the, the crimes involved, how it was covered up to such an extent, how widespread it was, I'm not sure most people really appreciate just how huge that scandal was and how many people it affected. They're doing just fine, it seems. It seems like it's business as usual. So, I mean, is it is it a little bit naive to think that Scientology might be the key to its own undoing? Well, you, you, the, we, when we look at these policies that are punishing victims and ripping apart families, what we see time and again is it's built into the DNA of Scientology. Like with the Catholic Church, part of the sad part of that whole story is, is the, um, the hypocrisy of it, that you have a church that expresses love and caring about your fellow human being. Well, then why are you harming these people over here, right? And the church needs to stop doing that. Whereas in Scientology, it's harming people, extorting people, destroying families, but that's at the heart of its policies. <laughs> that's what Scientology is about. So how do you reform that? You don't reform that. The government needs to take an interest and do something about this organization and at least investigate it. That's what so many of these activists are asking for, is the government isn't even investigating these things. And uh, that's why I think Leah Remini is so encouraged by what's going on right now with Diane Abbott and the HMRC, is that at least somebody is speaking up and doing something. That's all these activists are asking for. Because they believe that if the government does look, they will find abuses. They will find people just being lives being wrecked. The kind of things that we've been writing about for so long. I suppose the question as well, I mean, I suppose the only real weapon against them would be a financial one. And I suppose if the, the government, uh, HMRC, decides that they owe quite a lot in back taxes, that might be a difficult thing, thing for them to survive, perhaps. 
Absolutely. I mean, Scientology gets away with so much in the United States because they have this tax exempt status and it protects them. What are they doing with that tax exempt status? What are they doing with all that money? They're destroying lives. They're hiring private investigators to smear people. I mean, it's disgusting. And so, yeah, if, if the government were to investigate that and remove that tax exempt status, it's a completely different ballgame. Um, and again, that's that's what these activists are asking for, is at least look into it. The government isn't doing that here in the United States. Just to play devil's advocate then, which seems quite fitting iconography for this question. Uh, in terms of Scientology, everyone's very interested in it. You know, the celebrities, the thought of as weird and kooky and peculiar, and that people would really like to ask them questions about it and challenge it. And you reference the kind of kooky belief system uh, at the heart of it. And I'm just wondering if we were to contrast that to many of the other mainstream monotheisms, is it a million miles away? And we don't, well, I mean, for instance, we wouldn't question, we wouldn't uh, sort of interrogate an actor who was a Catholic based on right. the crimes of the Catholic Church. It's a very fair question. And sometimes people will make that objection to me and say, look, you know, uh, the things Scientologists believe are no weirder than, than, you know, these angels and stuff in the Bible. But there's a very big difference, a very ba basic difference. In, in Christianity, Judaism, Islam, you can find out what they believe in about a minute and a half. And the books they that all that is written in are, are either free or trivially cost, right? I mean, it, it, let's just take Christianity. You need to believe in Jesus Christ as your savior and then you'll live forever. That's it. It took me 10 seconds to explain that, right? And everything else is just detail. Science doesn't even level with you about what it's about until you have spent several hundred thousand dollars and you've been in for several years. It's that secrecy. It's that bait and switch that is essentially what makes Scientology so different than these other organizations. And, you know, they should be upfront about, listen, you're going to spend several years recovering who you were billions of years ago on other planets so that you can then release your superhuman powers there. It only took me 20 seconds, but Scientology won't tell you that until you've spent quarter of a million dollars. That's the main problem that I think this organization has is it will not tell people what it's really about. Of course, they know how many people would join if you told them that up front, right? Yeah, it's not the great, greatest marketing strategy, is it? And I suppose that explains a lot why they're kind of almost reinventing them as a kind of a self-help organization. When I there's a Church of Scientology in my home city of Manchester and a lot of the billboards enticing you in. Uh, outside are often related to kind of like you know work related stress perhaps and they want to want to offer you the the solution to those kind of things uh, one quick thing i just wanted to ask you as well because obviously they're an incredibly powerful litigious organization the you know it's documented they've engaged in harassment intimidation things like that you're at the forefront of attacking them and trying to you know unveil veil the truth about their inner workings uh, do you do you worry about this sort of thing i mean have you have you had any reasons to worry that perhaps they're you know focusing on you in a kind of a concerning way i don't worry about it but they have spent incredible amounts of money trying to destroy my life they are smearing me day and night, every day on the internet. They have spent so much money on private investigators in looking into my life, trying to intimidate me and my family. Stephen, they have had people try to harass people that are close to me all across this country. It, people in Tel Aviv, Israel, Jakarta, Indonesia, they have sent private investigators to harass people that know me. And luckily, the people that care about me want me to do what I'm doing, and they won't back down, and I've had a lot of support. So, 
yeah, they they try to do all the same things to me that they're doing to Leah Remini and Mike Render, and I just I just don't let that get me down because I know that the things they say about me are all lies. You'll you know look up my name, go ahead, see all the things they say about me on Twitter, on Google. It's all a bunch of garbage. The people who know me know it's garbage, and I just don't let it get me down. Fantastic answer, Tony. This has flown by. Maybe you could let our li uh, listeners and viewers know where they can find out more information on your work. Where can we find you? Please come sign up for free emails at tonyortega.substack.com. You will. I write a story every morning. You'll get a copy of it right in your own inbox. And uh, I'm on Twitter at uh, tonyortega94. Perfect. Tony, thank you for joining us. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thanks for having me on, Stephen. Take care. All the best. We did it, people. That's that's a wrap on Atwood Unleashed 127. Sean should be back at some point in the near future. I haven't killed him, honestly. Uh, so normal service shall be resumed. We hopefully will have a much longer episode uh, next week. I know Ash is furiously working on the guest as we speak. The man doesn't sleep. It's quite concerning, actually. Um, so thank you very much for all the thoughtful questions and comments i really do appreciate it and i try and read as many as i can and, and get through as many as possible follow the show outward unleashed over at locals it's free to sign up and the second half of the show is often streamed exclusively on there so you don't want to miss it uh, if you want to find out more of my content and my work the best place to find me is probably still on twitter or x you'll find me at g spellchecker i also sub on the stacks at s night dot substack.com it's all it's all turning up here in the comments now thanks to uh ash that's my youtube channel come over there i do some interviews sometimes report from events uh sometimes just stare into a camera and, and talk into a microphone much like this so uh come and check me out good evening everyone it's been a pleasure <laughs>